Good Christians don't get taken out by a lack of morality. They get taken out by uneven morality. They can get taken out by being so passionate about certain morals that they downplay other ones. They get so committed to avoiding one type of sin that they end up tolerating other types of sins. Accordingly, Satan is happy to whip us into righteous frenzy about one kind of sin so that we downplay the danger of others and that's how he ruins us.
wrote this song on a spiritual retreat in June. Um, it's essentially about the fact that God's love is complete and that he'll never, never love us more and he'll never love us less because his love is complete and it's always there no matter how we respond to his love. So it's called At Your Feet. What would you have to do with a sinner like me? A broken vessel, misshapen pottery. Why would you choose a wretch like me to be your child when you're a king? I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But you've called to me, and I'll never leave. God, I'm here in your presence, in the promise of your grace, in the promise of your love. I stand amazed. God, I'm here now before you. You've set this captive free. And here am I at your feet. What are you going to do with a child like me? I said I'd never leave. How you must grieve. Why would you see it through And say come back to me To this fool for free I don't deserve it I haven't earned it But you've called to me And you'll never leave God, I'm here presence in the promise of your grace in the promise of your love I stand amazed God I'm here now before you you set this captive free and here am I at your feet and you'll never love me more you never love me less you love me completely more love is impossible and less is a broken promise and you never break your promises God I'm here in your presence promise of your grace in the promise of your love I stand amazed God I'm here now before you you set this captive free and here am I at your feet
Good morning, Blue Water. I want to invite you to meditate on a couple of verses with me in the book of Romans. Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I love these verses because they remind us of some of the things that we have access to as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's so refreshing to remember that we have access to unlimited and victorious peace in Jesus, and we have access to God's grace, which is uh, empowering and stabilizing no matter what we're going through. So in light of these truths, let's pray together. Lord, we come before you once again, and we open up our hearts and our minds to your truths and your realities. Peace and grace, would you come into our hearts, come into our homes, touch our minds and touch our families. Jesus, we're so thankful for the nearness of your love and the access that we have to your resources. And today we choose to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, Antonio. Hey, Rolo. Why so down? Just thinking about summer. I'm gonna miss it. Well, what do you mean? Labor Day's already passed. School's started. Summer's been gone for like three weeks. Yeah, I know, but this year didn't feel the same. I mean... We didn't get to go to the all-church retreat and sit around the fire. We didn't get to end the retreat with a baptism. And I always look forward to promotion Sunday when the kids get to move up Sunday school classes. And I have to admit, I really miss my cool perspiration all throughout my shirt in the gym on Sundays. I see what you mean. You didn't get to do a lot of things you normally get to do in the summer. But this year has been pretty special in its own way. You know, a lot of families got to spend more time together. That's true. I guess just having a hard time letting go of summer, you know? Technically, this Tuesday is the autumnal equinox where this is the last Sunday of summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. You know what I love to do when I'm feeling sad about missing something? What's that? I like to sing a goodbye song and look forward to what's next. You know, I could sing a goodbye song about summer, like right now. You want to hear it? Yes. Cool. Goodbye, summer. You were so.
such a blast Pretty much wore a mask the whole time Goodbye summer I'm going back to school How many Zoom calls am I gonna have to do? Goodbye shave ice Melted really fast you are hard to eat Cause I pretty much wore a mask the whole time Goodbye summer I know you'll return But before soon Thanksgiving and Christmas Comes soon Goodbye summer such a blast pretty much wore a mask the whole time Whoa. goodbye summer I'm going back to school how many things am I going to have to do goodbye summer goodbye summer goodbye Summer, 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 goodbye, bye-bye, goodbye, summer, bye-bye, bye-bye, goodbye, summer. Thanks, Roll. Sure, Antonio. How do you feel? I feel ready to say hello to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Good morning, Blue Water, and thank you all for joining us this morning. Even though we are saying goodbye to summer, we are saying hello to the season of the pumpkin spice latte. And if you weren't able to tune in last week, uh, my name is Connor Hendricks, and I'm the new youth pastor here at Blue Water. Um, and I'll be giving the announcements today. So uh, the first part of family business, uh, is a, an announcement directly from me to some of you, um, and there is an incentive involved. So, if you are a junior high student, a high school student, or a parent of a junior high or high school student, this is for you. As I am hoping to be planning fun events soon, as soon as COVID restrictions lift, um, like the Sunday schools again, like movie nights, overnights, ministry, um, and big events and stuff that'll be fun for everyone, um, I have set up a, a communication platform in an app called Slack and I want to utilize Slack in order to uh, communicate with the parents in like parent forum with the students in a high school or junior high chat depending on where you fall into and then have general announcements kind of for everyone and I think it's going to benefit all of us especially starting in this season of COVID and then moving forward into the future um, and it's a safe place where people can chat there's not going to be any kind of outside input into this um, social media communication app, so there's no need really to worry there. Um, so as an incentive for you to join this platform, I will be giving a $5, which you can buy a pumpkin spice latte with, a $5 e-gift card to Starbucks if you send me the email, and you can email me at connor at bluewatermission.org with an email that you would like me to invite you to the chat to, 
and then as soon as you download the app and either message the entire group or directly message me, I will send you an e-gift card to Starbucks. It's a win-win. You get to communicate with me, with the rest of the group, uh, youth group, and you get to get caffeinated. Uh, the second order of family business is that we are planning a virtual baby dedication. A baby dedication is a chance to introduce the new babies in our community to their spiritual family through presentation and prayer. It is also a time for our community to offer its support in raising the baby in Christ. And if you'd like to dedicate your baby as well on an upcoming Sunday virtual um, service, please email Antonio at antonio at bluewatermission.org. Um, let's continue our worship through our offering. You can give in two ways, either online at our new website or via snail mail and send the checks directly here to the office. Um, if you're new or visiting, however, though, please feel no obligation to give, but consider this service our offering to you. Um, now I would like to pray for the kids. So kids, if you want to stand up wherever you are, um, I'm going to just pray for you guys and for this whole new upcoming season that is going to be heavy with programs for kids and it's new and it's exciting. Um, so Jesus, we just lift up all the keiki in the church to you. We thank you for everything that you're going to be doing in the new kids ministry and for all the excitement and all the new things that are coming. Um, and I just pray that you would instill an, an excitement in all of the, the kids in the church, that they would be excited um, to be able to come together and get to learn more about you, to be able to worship you, um, and to be able to grow as a community uh, with you. So we just bless the children today, um, and we say thank you so much, Lord, um, for their hearts, and I just pray that you would bless them and their households. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the second week of a sermon series on culture, and specifically what we're talking about is how culture can take out good Christians. Satan, when you think about it, probably doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about how to ruin weak, immoral people. He doesn't have to. Instead, he focuses on ruining good people, on ruining good Christians. So how do you, how do you think Satan might go about trying to ruin good people? It's about confusion and doubt usually things that look good, but they're not the best, you know, like they're not God's best. So it's something enticing, or maybe it has a little bit of truth mixed in along with some lies. He's a headhunter and he's after our imagination as much as possible. And I think that sometimes when, for myself, when I get too busy, and I get wrapped up into work or I'm not pressing into uh, prayer and the word, then uh, I become a target, more of a target anyway for the enemy. And what I feel like he wants to do is steal our identity in who we are in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. I think one of the best ways to do that is to uh, get that person offended if you can get them offended, get them offended, especially if you can get someone offended by someone at church and divide the church that way and get them to re recluse, reclude to themselves, uh, isolate themselves, ostracize, get, become ostracized. Um, it's so much easier to take that person down. I 
Satan uses the Jedi method in which to um, cause good people to fall. So J stands for justification, E is excuses, D is for distractions, and I is just I, like me, myself, and I. So, and it's often like little steps that eventually cause people, you know, whether it's justifying what you're doing, making excuses for not doing something or whatnot, or just being distracted from everything. Here's something that many of you know. I am a vegetarian. Oh my. I'm actually pretty hardcore at this point. Uh, I'm a vegan. I don't even eat dairy or eggs. It has been decades uh, since I have eaten animals and, and my, my desire to be vegetarian uh, goes way back to my childhood. Uh, I have a moral case uh, for being a vegetarian. Uh, I would say that the reason I initially wanted to be a vegetarian was due to compassion. I just, just am an animal lover and I don't like to see the cruelty that is perpetrated against animals uh, when it comes to the meat industry or just killing them generally. There's a health case for vegetarianism, of course, for veganism. Uh, it's a healthy way to eat. I mean, th th there's really no contest. I'm sorry, but that's, that's just the way it is. Vegetarians live on average seven years longer than people who eat meat, for instance. Uh, the vegan diet uh, is the only diet confirmed to actually reverse damage in the heart muscle. Uh, vegans are the only identifiable big social group in the United States that has healthy, optimal body mass index. The rest of America is 60 to 70% seriously overweight and obese. Uh, and all that anti-vegan propaganda that you get on YouTube, that stuff is nuts. Um, and large population studies have sealed it. They do these large population studies on people that eat a lot of plant-based diet instead of meat-based diet. And those populations always have lower incidences of heart disease and cancer and stuff like that. And no, in case you're wondering, Human teeth are not designed to eat meat. They are designed to eat vegetables and grains. Don't be ridiculous. There's also an environmental case for being a vegan, and this has become more popular uh, finally. Uh, the meat industry produces somewhere around 18 to 20% of all carbon emissions around the globe. The meat industry does that, which is more than all cars, planes, and other forms of transportation combined. And the meat industry is even worse uh, when you consider that um, uh, the cost of grazing land and the deforestation that comes with the meat industry. The meat industry is the number one cause of deforestation on the planet. So I could go on about that. And you can even make a biblical case uh, for vegetarianism uh, because as, uh, as you read in Genesis, people weren't actually... Uh, commission to eat uh, animals until after the flood uh, when all the crops had been wiped out, uh, etc. And so uh, you can make the case that humans started eating meat as a response to, uh, you know, a crisis necessity, uh, which is actually, you know, probably really true. Evolutionarily, we became omnivores uh, because it just increases, increased the breadth of what we could eat. Put all of that together and here's how it is, people. We vegetarians are right, and you meat eaters are wrong. Can I get an amen? Amen! And you might be thinking, why in the world is this pastor talking about this? Which is a good question. Uh, and first, 
I'm talking about it because it's a moral issue that I can talk about today without triggering a great wave of offense. And it's really hard to talk about any moral issue today without triggering a lot of offense uh, in the world. I get teased all the time about being a vegetarian. I get teased all the time at church. You may have heard it about being a vegetarian. And I like to think that I tease back uh, with gusto that I defend myself. Uh, people have wrapped packages of bacon and given it to me for Christmas. Uh, that's how deeply it goes. Uh, Nick Pereka, who does our uh, filming and our film editing, will probably find a way to insert meat-eating propaganda into this video. And that's okay, because I mostly love Nick. Uh, and secondly, the reason I'm talking about this, because you're probably not a vegan, uh, those of you who are listening, uh, because maybe you're not as passionate about animals as I am. Maybe you're not as passionate about the environment as I am. And therefore, I don't have to convince you that I shouldn't emphasize this one expression of morality, veganism, to the exclusion of others. You can appreciate that because you're not as passionate about this one morality as I am. We've all met the vegan Pharisee, am I right? We, we've all met that guy who just is so committed to veganism that he just mows people down with it, right? Uh, who has a beautiful plate, but the rest of his life is just in shambles, right? We've all met that guy? We've all met that guy. I try not to be, I try not to be that guy. Thank you. Morality is a fabric with many threads woven through it. And I know I'm right about my diet. I'm right about my diet. But if I tugged on that thread too much, it might have the effect of tangling up some of the other values. Are you following me? Uh, you, you probably should be a vegan. And many of you probably kind of know that. Uh, particularly those of you who are struggling with certain health things. All right, maybe you want to argue with me about it, maybe not, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good argument. So, you know, you probably should be a vegan, but it might be more important for you to take that first step into faith in Jesus. That might be the important thing right now, or to work on your, I don't know, your relational righteousness, a little more righteousness in your relationships or maybe it's more important for you right now to break certain addictions that you have. Should I lead the church against animal cru cruelty and environmental injustice? Well, I mean, that wouldn't be bad, right? Or should we focus more on ministering to sex trafficking victims or uh, fighting racial injustice? Those are awesome things as well. They're all good things, right? They're all good. And though we can't do all things at once, we want to be careful not to focus so much on one or two things that we neglect the other important things. And that's just a truism of morality uh, that I think we should all appreciate. And I thought vegetarianism might be a good illustration of that for us. Conversely, and more to the point uh, with respect to our current culture conflict right now in this country, we don't want to focus so much on one bad thing, one sin, one immorality, 
that we start to accept other immoralities. We don't want to focus so much on one bad thing that we downplay the danger of the others. Which is the worst immorality we're facing today? I feel like that's a question that culture keeps asking us. Which is the worst immorality that we are facing today? Is it the arrogance of Trump? Or is it the licentiousness of the Democrats? Is it racist cops? Or is it deadly lawlessness in the cities? Is it the way black men are sentenced more harshly in courtrooms or the high rates of crime among blacks? Is it the cost of health care, or is it the 700,000 unborn babies that are terminated each year? Is it lack of jobs, or is it how we treat the environment? Is it social justice, or is it your personal sin? Well, yes. Yes, it is. Pick your most urgent one but don't downplay the others or else you get yourself in a dangerous place. Perhaps my favorite quote uh, from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, is, is this one. The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. I think this is just so insightful. Lewis is right. When we try to prove that one error is worse than another, we always end up accepting the error that we downplay. That's the game. That's how it works. Let's say you try to prove that laziness is the worst error. You hate laziness. Well, you're likely to become a taskmaster then. You hate judgmentalism and self-righteousness. So you become morally watered down. Or you're so tired of lawlessness that you're likely to become cruel. Satan knows exactly how to play this game. And... And so do a lot of politicians, I think. Moral indignation and offense in one area is used to distract you from immorality in another era, area. That's how it works. You following? And that's how Satan takes you out through moral culture. He creates bad moral culture, which is defined not as a lack of moral passion, but as an incompleteness in moral passions, as an unevenness in moral passions. Is everybody following? That's the game. That's actually Satan's trick. That's how he does it. I think Jesus is probably the most influential moral teacher of all time. I get an amen for that. But you notice if you read scripture that Jesus actually didn't often talk about morals directly. Instead, he talked about moral culture. That is, he talked about how to pursue morals in a healthy way. And he talked about what might ruin that. And one of the things he talked about most in that regard was 
hypocrisy. We all know that word, hypocrisy. There are only a couple times in all of the Gospels that Jesus ever calls a sin out of a person, calls out the sin in a person. And even those two instances are filled with compassion and protectiveness. You know, he calls out the sin so that the person would stop putting uh, himself and herself at risk. Uh, but he does talk about hypocrisy a lot. Here's the thing. You know what hypocrisy means? I think most of us have an intuitive understanding of it. Uh, but perhaps not an entire understanding of it. Typically, hypocrisy isn't telling someone to avoid some sinful thing while you yourself do that sinful thing. Typically, hypocrisy uh, is congratulating ourselves for avoiding a certain sin while we kind of blithely accept other sins in our life. You understand the difference? That's the kind of hypocrisy that moral people often fall prey to. It's like someone who obsessively promotes, I don't know, compassion for refugees, which would be awesome, while living an incredibly immoral sexual life, right? That's the kind of hypocrisy that typically takes out good people, moral people, people who value morality at least. Um, because it only takes one bullet to ruin you, right? If you avoid nine mistakes, but go all in on one, it only takes one uh, to take us out. And you know, the gospels are, are filled with passages about this. I was reading in the book of Revelations this week, Revelations two has another famous passage where the spirit of the Lord is speaking to various churches around the world. Uh, he, for instance, says to the church in Thyatira, Thyatira um, you guys are doing great when it comes to love and faithfulness and service and perseverance. But you've been led into sexual immorality and you've come to accept it. It's going to take you out. That's the kind of hypocrisy that typically gets us into trouble. It's the most moralized people who are vulnerable to this particular sort of error. Jesus talks about this a lot. Our passage for today is a very short excerpt from Matthew chapter 23. Uh, which is a long Jesus teaching. He goes through the whole chapter. Jesus is talking to religious leaders, to Pharisees and teachers of the law, and he's going through different ways that they fall prey to hypocrisy. Um, and rather than go through the entire long teaching, I just want to take a very short excerpt from it because I think it kind of crystallizes the principle here. So we're just going to read Matthew 23 verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus speaking to the, to the moral crowd, to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a mat, but swallow a camel. What's going on here is that the Pharisees have gotten kind of obsessive about one certain precept uh, of, uh, of the law, 
God encourages his people to tithe, right? To sacrifice their material possessions to God and to the operation of the temple. When he first gave the command about tithing in the Old Testament, uh, it was so that the Israelites would take the first tenth of their crops and they would donate them to the temple. They would sacrifice them to God, which was a way of making sure that the priesthood had stuff to eat, but also a statement that you trust God to provide for you materially, that you are free from money fear, essentially. Now, the Pharisees think that that's a very important precept, so they've taken it to the extreme. They are not just uh, donating a tithe of their income to the temple, uh, they're donating a tithe of what they have in their kitchen, right? They've got these spices, this dill and mint and cumin, and they're giving even a tenth of that to the temple. Uh, so they've really become fine-grained with it. And Jesus is like, well, all right, I mean, you're, you're perfecting that one precept, uh, but, you know, what about the others? There are some other big ones like justice, like, you know, taking care of people. Uh, mercy, forgiveness. How important is forgiveness in the kingdom of God? Well, it's a pretty big deal. And faithfulness. And he says those are the more important matters. And you might think that, well, they should have done the opposite, right? They could have neglected tithing as long as they majored on stuff like justice and forgiveness. But that's not actually what Jesus says. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He said, the point, guys, is that you have to do it all at least as best you can. You can't downplay any part of it. And you certainly can't downplay a part of it, just become an expert in a piece of it or super passionate about a piece of it. There is a danger in there. And that danger Jesus calls hypocrisy. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Be careful what you swallow. Don't let your passion about one thing tempt you to swallow toxins uh, in other areas. All precepts exist for a reason. All godly principles are valuable. It only takes one bullet to ruin you. A culture of moral inconsistency, let's call it, can be created when we act as if one error is the worst error. That's the thing, especially if we come to compete over it, as often happens in the political sphere. Each group has a most hated error, and then we try to compete to see which error is the worst, which is the most important one to avoid, and on the side, Satan just cackles because it's a perfect setup for him. All errors are bad. I try to be on the side of all morality. Uh, I'm not on the side of your favorite piece of morality, even if it's veganism. Um, I myself do no piece of morality perfectly, uh, but I'm not going to excuse my failures by de-emphasizing their importance. They're all equal. And when people play piecemeal morality, you know what I mean by that? When people play piecemeal morality, it always generates increasing amounts and sorts of hypocrisy. Um, if you have a, a piecemeal morality, 
you will increasingly neglect uh, the morals that you don't favor, but you'll also invariably betray even your favorite moral. Uh, so if you care a lot about compassion, let's say again, you will downplay perhaps uprightness, but eventually you'll also downplay compassion. Eventually you'll become mean. If you're, uh, let's say uh, you really emphasize um, scriptural obedience, knowledge, scriptural expertise, right? You're a person of the written word. Um, you become kind of a scripture legalist, maybe. Um, well, uh, initially, you perhaps will downplay issues of compassion to people. But you will also eventually lose your ability to understand scripture. And the reason it works like that, uh, because as God tells Cain, in the opening of the book of Genesis, you must master sin or it will master you. If you let sin into any part of your life, it doesn't mean if you commit a sin, it means if you accommodate a sin, right? If you accept it, if you begin to tolerate it, uh, then it has the nature of an addiction. It will take over not just that piece of your life, but it will eventually grow to take over all of your life. You become a puppet. That's the nature of sin. And that's why Satan doesn't necessarily want you to throw out your morality. He just wants you to throw out a piece of it so that you think you're righteous, even though he's contaminating you bit by bit. And pretty soon you're just, you're just a puppet like everybody else. Does that sound, I'm sorry, it sounds a little sober. It sounds a little down, but if you're following me, that's how it works. That's the game that Satan plays. Take a step back for a moment. Let's just think about morality. Let's just think about moral culture a bit more conceptually. What is morality for? What's morality for? And morality is health. That's what it is. Psychology used to be called morality in ancient times. Uh, what I mean by that is if you live morally, Right? If you respect the, the precepts of the Lord, then it will protect you from all sorts of psychological trouble. It will protect you from emotional and mental pathologies. Or if you are, let's say, you know, emotionally traumatized or something, then live morally, cultivate the precepts of the Lord in your life, and you'll get better. It will become super helpful. Uh, after God had outlined a whole bunch of his precepts uh, to the Israelites in the book of Exodus, he said, uh, with these precepts, I set before you life and death. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. He didn't say, if you disobey these rules, I'm going to kill you. He said, these principles lead to life and health and prosperity for you and through the generations, morality is health and it's social health. Moral codes are for that. It keeps you out of trouble and it promotes health in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, psychology uh, in this country used to be about illnesses. Uh, what makes a person sick and how do you treat psychological illnesses? And then you know, late 80s through 90s, there was a great move in psychology called positive psychology. You guys heard about this? Everybody studied it. And instead of trying to determine what made people sick, psychologists started researching what makes people healthy. 
and it actually led to some very encouraging uh, revelations. It turns out that things like self-sacrifice, forgiveness, generosity, relational and sexual faithfulness make people healthy. Well, of course they do, right? People have known that for millennia, uh, and that's what the commandments of God are about. If you pursue a healthy morality, then you actually become you know, a healthy person. You're resilient against sickness and against pathologies and against trauma. That's how it works. So too, a moral society, a society that has a healthy moral culture, protects everyone from societal ills. That was how God explained it, and it is still true. A moral society is a healthy, peaceful, and prosperous society, by and large. It doesn't mean that bad things can't happen, that crises can't happen. It just means that you become healthy and resilient. Your ability to overcome and to recover is really, really strong. Honor your father and mother, uh, God says in the Ten Commandments, so it may go well with you in the land I am giving you. Right? Honor these precepts, honor these moralities, and you're going to set yourself up and your kids up uh, for a long time to come. It's going to be awesome. Bad moral culture, by contrast, creates an unhealthy, contentious, deprivation society full of troubles. That's how it works. So Karl Marx was wrong. He famously said, Christian religion is the opiate of the masses. But it's not the opiate of the masses. It's the nutrition and the medicine of the masses. That's what Christianity is. And we'll talk later in this sermon series uh, about how Christianity has been a social good for societies uh, throughout history. Uh, but my point is, as with, say, healthy food nutrition, uh, you need all pieces of it, right? You can't be a healthy person by eating nothing but fiber and vitamin C. You will feel bad uh, if, if that's you. You need the, the complete range of vitamins and minerals and macronutrients and stuff like that. And morality is not dissimilar in that sense. So, okay, let's say you're Satan. Take a moment, imagine that you're Satan. It will not be hard for some of you. <laughs> let's say that you're Satan. And let's say that you want to ruin a, a, a good, moral, aspiring good, moral society. Let's say that you want to take out masses of good people. Let's say that you want to ruin masses of, of, of good Christians. Well, what do you do? What's your best strategy? And I think your best strategy is that you ruin moral culture. You ruin the way people pursue morals. That's what you do. How? Well, you do it by getting people to obsess about which errors are worse. That's his number one strategy. <clears throat> you might think that Satan will try to convince people that morals are meaningless. And sometimes he does that. But it's not his big strategy. His big strategy is to get moral people to play moral favorites. That's his big strategy. And it's been that way for a long time. <clears throat> to emphasize one error or virtue to the neglect of others. 
And then, if he wants to go to the next level, he encourages competitive groups around those moral favorites. Moral competitors might eventually be unwilling to admit they even need to pay attention to their less favorite morals. Strong moral culture pays attention to all morals at once without overlooking anything, without excuses, and with necessary humility. It's like I tell my kids when they're driving a car. You have to see all things at once. If you're really good at looking at the things ahead of you, you'll get sideswiped. You, know, you can't emphasize the brake and not the accelerator. Accidents will happen. You follow me? Yeah. All right, so what do we do with all this? What do we do? How do we create a strong moral culture and avoid a, a, a bad one. The thing that allows us to emphasize all morals at once, to pursue them all in a healthy way, is, of course, grace. Grace is the only thing that prevents hypocrisy and bad moral culture. Now, you might think differently, right? You might think uh, that if the if the job is to pursue all good moral things at once and not neglect any of them, that what you should do is become a moral zealot, a hyper-disciplined, hyper, I don't know, religious and passionate moral person. And, you know, and there, there are certainly good features to that. But really what it is is that you need grace, which, which is a combination of moral passion plus generosity. That's what grace is. Grace is the opposite of measurement. It isn't relativism, but it's not measurement either. In grace, we don't worry about which error is worse because we're not judging. We're not evaluating that way. And we're able to admit that we're all making errors anyway and it relaxes things such that we can see the entire moral field instead of just having to obsess about one piece of it. This doesn't mean that you can't call a sin a sin. That would be relativism. That would be amorality, and that's nonsense. But it means that you have to be generous with those who emphasize different moral urgencies than you do. You have to be gracious, you have to be generous, and you have to be embracing. That's the way this works. Or, as I might sum up, the only way to preach the gospel is to preach all of it. You don't get to just preach your favorite bit of it. And as soon as you do that, moral culture falls apart. You make yourself really vulnerable. You might make generations to come really vulnerable. And we don't want that, good Christians. That's a good way for Satan to take us out. So Father, we pray that we would be broadly just and infinitely humble and filled with grace above all. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would empower us to make decisions and to attend to the errors of today without neglecting all of the other errors, potential errors that are out there. The only instrument we know to be strong moral people 
is the gospel, Lord. It's the way of Jesus, which transcends and rises above the petty debates of our culture and our politics. We pray, Lord, that somehow in the midst of our lives and our community and our world, that Jesus would be glorified and that the full gospel would be preached and demonstrated in all corners. I pray that you would give us clarity by giving us completeness. That none of us would have blinders on, that none of us would be hypocrites. And I pray, Lord, that in this way, you would make us powerful and refreshing people in a time of fear and division. I just feel um, particularly led right now to pray for um, uh, Sabbath morality, just to pray uh, that the Lord would release obedience to his commandments to rest, uh, to, to take a time out. I, I, I think the Lord would have us all kind of take a time out uh, from the cultural and the political upheaval, to take a day and just chill, relax, uh, so that he can restore clarity and broad moral energy and health to us all. I don't know if that resonates with you, but if it does, God bless you. Uh, adhere to the commandment of the Lord. Uh, Father, we look to your lead uh, because we are all lost. We have all gone astray and we need a shepherd. Uh, be the shepherd of your people. You are our leader, Lord. And we take such security in that. In Christ's name, everybody says amen. Thank you, Blue Water Fam, for joining us this morning on our virtual service. I don't know about you, but to me, life can easily feel like a stretch on some of these days. In the midst of it, I'm reminded that we can take confidence and courage in knowing that God is at work creating new things on our behalf and at large in the world. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Can you see it? Prayer is always a helpful way to usher in the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus. If you'd like prayer this morning, please feel free to email our prayer team. Email julie at bluewatermission.org and someone from the team will contact you. They're available from 10.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. Now, may we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the river of life which flows from God at the center of our lives. Be blessed with peace and rest today. Goodbye, you were such a blast. Pretty much for a mass the whole time.